pray together, shall we? Father, thank you for uh, this morning, the gift of a Sunday morning together in worship, the gift of uh, time to sing and celebrate who you are, to sing that first Christmas carol of the year there together. And uh, Father, thank you for your word. You haven't left us to wonder who you are or what you're like. Uh, You've told us and you've shown us in your word. And so, Lord, would you teach us now uh, by your spirit? Would you help us understand what we read? God, would you convict us where we need to be convicted? And would you comfort us where we need to be comforted? Uh, Do all that you want to do in this place. Uh, In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, well, hey, good morning, and uh, open up your Bible with me, if you would, to Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1 is where we'll be. My name is Matt, and I'm one of the pastors here at FBC, and it's so good to be back with you. Last week I was gone. I was actually able to preach at uh, the church I grew up in, in Sacramento. And so it was a real joy, kind of full circle moment to to go back there and get to bring the message at the place where I was just a chubby, awkward kid in the youth group and came to know Jesus and was baptized there. And so uh, it was fun to be there. But Amber and I were just so glad to come back uh, this morning and be here with you. We love you, church, people of FBC. It's truly a blessing to be here. And thank you to Pastor Ian for bringing the word, a great message last Sunday while I was away. And we are just, um, we're glad that you're with us here. This first Sunday of Advent, as you can see, taking a look around that the church is all decorated for Christmas. Uh, Big shout out to Luna and uh, Andre and all who helped them decorate the church for Christmas. It looks amazing. It's gorgeous. And it helps us all right get uh, in the heart of the season, celebrating Christmas together. So if you see Andre and Luna, I don't know if they're here this morning. They're, they might not. I, I don't see them. But next time you see them, give them a hug, kiss on the cheek if it's appropriate, and uh, thank them for for the beautiful surroundings we have. Um, As we heard earlier uh, from Emily and Ashton with the reading and candle lighting, Advent is the special season leading up to Christmas. It's marked by uh, preparation and expectation and longing and kind of entering into that part in the story where we look ahead to all that God uh, still wants to do in the world. And the series title for Advent that we'll be preaching through is called The Fifth Gospel, which I admit might sound a little strange to you if you're a church-going person or are familiar with the Bible. You know there are these books of the Bible called the Gospels, these primary accounts of the life of Jesus, right? Uh, There's four of them, though. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and... John, right. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There's four Gospels. And so you might say the fifth Gospel. Uh, What is this? Some new heresy that the pastor is introducing? It's actually just a little something I wrote up and wanted to add into the Bible. And you thought there were four Gospels. Think again. There's five now because Pastor Matt says so. Um, No, don't worry. It's It's nothing like that. Actually, you could look to the early church fathers in the first centuries, guys like Augustine and Jerome, and they wrote and spoke about the book of Isaiah as a gospel. Isaiah, one of the major prophets in the Old Testament, uh, Isaiah was written 700 years before the life of Jesus, and yet it's full of prophecy and illusions and promises about the coming Messiah. It has so much in it foretelling the life and ministry of Jesus. 
what the Messiah would come to do, who he would be. They say it was packed full of so much of that that it could almost be considered a gospel. The book of Isaiah is actually quoted more times in the New Testament than any other Old Testament book. Early church father Jerome, writing in the 300s, said this of the book. He said, he, Isaiah, should be called an evangelist rather than a prophet because he describes all the mysteries of Christ and the church so clearly that you would think he is composing a history of what has already happened rather than prophesying about what is to come. And so for the next a few weeks, we get to look at this fifth gospel and these promises, these prophecies in the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament and see how it all points us to Jesus. This morning, though, we got to do a little bit of groundwork laying the foundation for what is to come. And you'll see that the story of Isaiah actually starts with some bad news. You heard it read aloud, and like Emily and Ashton read for us earlier, they said Christmas is an indictment before it is a delight. There's actually some bad news that comes before the good news. To appreciate the good news, we have to understand the bad news. See, because freedom is celebrated in light of captivity, and life is celebrated in contrast with death. And the language of rescue And redemption and being saved requires the idea of being in trouble in the first place. It only makes sense of, or it only makes sense in light of some desperate need and crisis that we found ourselves in. And so Isaiah starts with the bad news. Let's look at it together again. Isaiah chapter one, verse one. Here's how the book starts. The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear me, you heavens, listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, the donkey its owner's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Woe to the sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great. A brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They've forsaken the Lord, spurned the Holy One of Israel, and turned their backs on Him. So Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1, starts with this, this vision from Isaiah, this word from Isaiah to the people, from the Lord. Isaiah was a prophet. That was his job, to speak on behalf of the Lord to the people. He lived and ministered in the 8th century B.C. during the reign of King Uzziah and other kings listed there of Judah. See, this is after the exodus with Moses, after the wilderness wanderings, after the people entered the promised land and after the period of the judges and after the first king Saul is raised up and after King David and after his son Solomon on down the line, the kingdom ultimately became divided into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And that's the situation we see here in the 8th century BC that Isaiah speaks to. And you see, he writes to the people of God With a heavy word, he says that the people, the nation, has become marked by sin. Verse 4, woe to the sinful nation, a people whose guilt 
is great. It's a heavy word. The people were supposed to be a holy nation. People uh, separate, distinct from all the surrounding nations, a, a light in a dark world, pointing people to the goodness of God and the glory of God and how God had called them to live and inviting all people to come to know the one true God. And yet, rather than being a holy nation, they're labeled a sinful nation. And we don't know all the uh, exact details of why this descent into sin took place for them. I mean, historically, there was the growing threat of Assyria and Babylon looming, these foreign powers that would eventually come in and and conquer them and lead them off into exile. And so maybe there was this growing fear and concern about foreign nations coming and doing violence to them. And so they stopped trusting in the Lord, perhaps. But, but I think part of the point of the book of Isaiah is that their specific situation is not necessarily unique. It's not necessarily that they were the only people dealing with sin before the Lord. Actually, through this word to Israel, we see a window into the human condition. We see this, this picture of the reality of sin that we all deal with. Because as the book goes on, it shows us clearly that it's not just Israel and the people of God who are in view. Actually, there's these uh, words of judgment that come to the nations, how the nations have turned from God. Going to the point of Isaiah 53, where it says, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way. Or Isaiah 64 that says, all of us have become unclean. It's this really sweeping broad word about humanity. And so it's important that we understand sin and and the way that the Bible talks about sin, because it's one of those things that we can easily misunderstand today. It's an uncomfortable topic, right? And so sometimes what we do is we want to minimize sin or or today, a lot of us will uh, say that sin isn't even a thing. It's just like sin is a, a crusty antiquated idea, something that people in, you know, like the medieval ages, centuries ago, talked about, and they were real negative, but we're a, you know, we're a positive thinking society, and we know now that, you know, people are mostly good at heart, and so talking about sin is just going to get people down, and it's going to be too negative, and so let's not, let's not go there, and if, if, if that's you, I, I know that a lot of people maybe think that nowadays. I just want to point out, that's a really bold stance to take. You know, to really, I mean, like, look, read the headlines in the papers and look at the realities of, of racism and, and abuse and human trafficking and war and violence and all, all these horrible things that we read about in the world uh, on and on and be like, yeah, you know, people are mostly good at heart. I mean, I, I just, I'm just not sure the math adds up at all when we just look at that. I mean, how, how does that explain just the devastating reality of the world in which we live? a world that has touched so many of our lives with grief and loss and pain and so on. And so, um, again, if that's you, Jen, I would love to talk with you after the service and just hear how, how for you that makes sense because it just feels like the math doesn't add up at all to say that sin isn't a real thing. And so then some of us, what we'll do is say, well, okay, yeah, sin is a thing, but it's, we narrow it and say it's this really limited category of what you know, super bad people do like those who rob a bank or steal from the cash register at work or 
beat up strangers with sticks on the street or the people who invented paper straws, you know, things like that. We're like just really bad people, really bad things. That's the category. And then we look at our sweet kids or our newborns and we have trouble applying the label of sin or sinner to our sweet kids. And we're like, they're going to grow up and never do anything wrong their whole lives. But then, of course, our kids grow up and we're like, that's not true at all. And we see again, even from a, a young age. But just all the, my point is there's all these distorted ways we think about sin that doesn't really line up with what the Bible has to say about sin. So we should let the Bible instruct us, teach us about how to think about sin, what sin looks like, how it works in our lives. And so Isaiah chapter one talks a lot about sin and helps us make sense of what it is. And so there's a couple angles to it that we need to understand. And the first is uh, sin introduces this relational break with God. At the heart of sin is the separation from God relationally. Look at uh, chapter one, verse two. God says, I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, the donkey its own manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. You see the language God uses? I reared children and brought them up. He uses the image of a father with his children. It's relational language. They've gone astray. So you see that the Bible shows us we were created by God and designed for a relationship with him, to know him and love him and be loved by him and enjoy him and walk with him and serve him and, and be with him in the world. And here Israel, with Israel, God speaks of this relationship being broken, like a child that's grown up and rebelled and, and left home and broken the relationship. Think of uh, Luke chapter 15 with the prodigal son who grew up and said, I want nothing to do with you, dad, and left home. He even drives it home in verse three. Did you notice that saying? Even animals, <laughs> even the ox and the donkey know their master. They know who's in charge. They know who takes care of them and loves them, right? An ox, a donkey, um, house cats are evil, so we won't include them. We're not going to, they don't count in this, but most animals, your, your dog, if you have a dog, any dog people in the house, your dog, right? Just the best, right? They have this, this well of gratitude in their hearts to you, their owner, because they know that you love them and you feed them and you take care of them and you snuggle with them and you do all the things for them because you love them. Even animals know their master, they know who loves them and takes care of them, but Israel, he says. How tragic, verse three, but they, they don't know. They somehow miss what the animal world so instinctively grasps and understands. They don't understand. They don't realize I'm the one who, I'm the one who loves them. I'm the one who is for them. I'm the one who provides the sunshine and the rain for them. I'm the one who gives them breath in their lungs and life in their bodies wants to shepherd them and feed them and care for them. So there's this tragic relational break caused by sin. Verse four leading to ultimately saying we've, we've forsaken the Lord and turned our backs and gone the other direction and chosen life without God. Notice verse two also uses the language of rebellion, right? Verse two, I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. So here, there's more than just a relational dynamic. There's this kind of cosmic uh, sovereign reality that we have uh, stood in open defiance against God. 
God is the sovereign ruler of the universe, and we've, we've turned from him, rebelled against his rule and reign. And rather than obeying God and his ways and his laws, uh, we have set up our own little kingdoms where we're in charge. Thank you very much. And so we know God says to do it this way, but we're uh, going to rule over here and try to set up our own little kingdoms. And we say things like, God, I know you tell me to love my enemies, but that's rather hard to do. I'd rather hate them and, and harbor bitterness in my heart towards them. So your kingdom says to live this way, but I'm going to live over here in my own kingdom. Thank you very much. Or we say, God, I know that your word calls me to live generously and that you are the owner of all things. I'm simply a steward. And so you've entrusted me with these resources and this money to use uh, for your kingdom and the good of other people and the good of the poor, not just for myself, but I'm, uh, I would frankly rather live and just use all my money on me and my toys and my kingdom. Thank you very much. Or we say, God, I know what your word says about, again, marriage, about sexuality, about relationships and how that's all supposed to look. But we know better nowadays and I know better nowadays how to handle my life and my relationships. So uh, thanks, but no thanks, God. I'm going to do things this way. You see, I mean, we just go on and on down, down the list. We, we stand opposed to the rule and reign of God and want to do things our way. And this is essentially uh, treason. Right? Cosmic treason. In modern terms, what is treason? Treason is right, where you uh, stand opposed to and betray your own country. Right? As a citizen, you act against your own government to overthrow it or aid their enemies. And do you know what the, the punishment for treason is modern day? Death. You'd be punished by death for, for treason. And so essentially, uh, when we sin against God, it's, it's cosmic treason. We say, no, thank you, God. I reject your rule and reign as the rightful king of the universe. This is what Adam and Eve did in the garden. We want to define good and evil for ourselves. This is what uh, the people of Israel and Isaiah did. This is what we do today. So we have this relational break. We have this reality of rebellion against the ruler and king of the universe. And you see the result in the text. Look at verse four. Woe to the sinful people, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They've forsaken the Lord, spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. So there's relational separation, there's rebellion, and it always leads to evil doing, it says. Corruption. It leads to people mistreating others and using people for their own good, right? Evildoers and corruption is mentioned in the text. And this always happens when our relationship with God is broken and we set ourselves up as our own authority and those in charge. It leads to oppression and injustice, corruption, people are hurt. There's this really inarguable theme throughout history. If you look at human history, you see People will set God aside and then those with money and power will use both for their own benefit. And the strong and the wealthy mistreat the weak and the vulnerable. And those often hurt the most are women and children and the inconvenient other. See what continues, verse 21. See how the faithful city has become a prostitute. Good night. Welcome to church. The faithful city has become 
a prostitute. She was once full of justice and righteousness, used to dwell in her, but now murderers. And then verse, verse 23, your rulers are rebels, partners with thieves. They all love bribes and chase after gifts. They do not defend the cause of the fatherless. The widow's case does not come before them. You see how the, the, the people were once full of justice and righteousness, and now it says injustice is present, and, and the rulers and the leaders are corrupt, and they're accepting bribes, and the most vulnerable among them, orphans and widows, are overlooked or taken advantage of. And as, as, as the chapters of Isaiah go on, you just see the list of sins grow. They're, they're, they're worshiping idols. They're proud and their hearts, they do what is right in their own eyes at the expense of others, often the poor. Now, one of the things that should really strike us when we read the Bible is we should see what God stands opposed to. Like what bothers God, what God is, is angry about. When God in his word stands against something, I mean, that, that should shape our conscience, right? That should start to form and shape the types of things that we get worked up about. Like we should be grieved by the same sorts of things that grieve the heart of God, right? We should work against the same things that, that God stands against. But that's difficult because today, let's be honest, there's just outrage everywhere. I mean, everybody's outraged about everything. You go online, sometimes I open up, you know, Facebook or Twitter and it's like, no thanks. <laughs> I can't handle that negativity in my life because everyone's outraged about everything. There's, I just was reading uh, some of this this week about what people get worked up about. There's vegan outrage. Any, I don't know if there's any vegans are here. I have nothing against vegans, but apparently vegans are some very angry people. There's a thing, vegan outrage. And people are writing about how uh, all this, they get worked up about it. And there's uh, celebrity outrage. We get, we get upset with what celebrities do or don't do. There's um, Harry Potter outrage. I read this week about, I didn't know this. There's, have you heard about the Harry Potter heresy? I don't know. I know. So apparently, J.K. Rowling, um, the author of Harry Potter, in an interview at some point, said that, so in, in the story, uh, Hermione ends up marrying Ron. Okay, spoiler alert. Thank you, Mary. And um, in, in an interview, she was like, you know what? I really think Hermione should have ended up with Harry. She should have ended up with Harry. They were a better fit. They were always there for each other. The Ron thing was kind of forced. And Harry Potter fans were outraged. I mean, they were like, there were articles about it. They, they yelled about it. They were fierce about it. The Harry Potter heresy, they called it. How could you say such a thing? And so much so that she actually eventually went and like backtracked her comments. Was like, okay, okay, I get it, people. I'll take it back. Harry, Ron and Hermione are good together. But um, just an example, right? We get worked up about so many things that, that sometimes, and that's sometimes exhausting for us. So sometimes I want to be just like, everybody calm down, just please. But then we have to remember that there actually are some things that we should be uh, grieved by, right? There are some things in the world that should really uh, lay heavy on our hearts and, and, and move us to action. But the, the key is to let scripture, let the word of God tell us what those things are. So we're not just an angry person on Facebook ranting and raving about everything, but we actually can be really selective. And what are the things that we actually should give our time and attention and focus to, to solving in the world? We should let scripture show us. And so in Isaiah, point me, what does it show us grieves the heart of God? Well, again, idol worship is mentioned. 
injustice is mentioned, when people are wronged or taken advantage of or the vulnerable are not cared for, when there's bribes and corruption, violence and murder, orphans left on their own, widows being overlooked and mistreated, those are things that the church should be grieved by because the Lord is. We should find ways to work on their behalf. So I point all this out, I just want us to see how far-reaching the reality of sin is. It's not just this narrow, small little category, uh, but it's this broken relationship with God, rebellion against God, which leads to hurting, mistreating others. It not only wreaks havoc on our world now, but leaves us guilty before a holy God. There's this thing in the book of Isaiah called the day of the Lord where God's judgment will fall on his people, will fall on the nations for their sin. And it's this this devastating and destructive reality. And yes, there will be a remnant that is saved. There's, There's a message of hope here intertwined in the book of Isaiah of mercy and salvation. But there is first this heavy reality of judgment that still stands today as we'll stand before the Lord one day. It's a heavy, weighty reality. And so this is kind of a heavy text to start Advent week one with, right? Merry Christmas, you sinners. Here we go. Welcome to church. And yet we, we need to lean in here and see what the text is trying to tell us then and, and now. What's, what's the solution then? If this is such a weighty reality, the problem of sin, what's God going to do about that? What are we going to do about that? <clears throat> Many of us will look at the problem of sin and evil in the world and think, as good church-going people, here we go, that the answer is religion. Religion is the solution, right? That's surely what the pastor, what the preacher man is going to say. Look at all these irreligious people acting a fool out there in the world. They need to get their butts in a pew and learn to act right. That's the answer, right? Right? No, actually the problem, I mean, with with the people of God in Isaiah is that they were already doing the religion thing. I mean, they were already Bible reading, church going kind of people. I mean, look what God says to them in chapter one, verse 11. The multitude of your sacrifices, what, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons and Sabbaths and convocations. I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals I hate with all my being. They've become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. This is God speaking. You see what he's saying? He's saying all these little sacrifices you're doing, they're, what are they to me? They're meaningless. You're bringing me your burnt offerings. I, I got plenty of those. I don't need more right now. Verse 13, stop bringing meaningless offerings, all your little feasts and your Sabbaths and your celebrations and your festivals. So I hate them. They're, they're a burden to me. Can you imagine? God, say that all your little church services, your little prayer times and little songs that you sing, those are just, I become weary having to listen to that. I loathe it. Imagine singing, glow, not this again, knock that off. All right, we started, 
in Christ alone. And God's like, ah. not again. This, here they go again. Okay. It's pretty striking language, I think. Why? Why does God speak so profoundly against the people's religion of all things? It's because, again, the, the people are just going through the religious motions. They're just doing the external churchy dance, you could say. Meanwhile, he says, hey, you're still oppressing the poor. Your, your hands are full of blood, he goes on to say, and injustice, and you're worshiping idols, and then you just come into church as if there's no problem, singing your little songs, offering your sacrifices, giving your tithes. All the while, you, you really want nothing to do with me. You might honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. See, God doesn't just want your externally polished religion, hoop jumping, dead religion. He wants your heart. Amen. He wants you to love him and be with him and live a life in light of his ways and his word. Now, don't mistake the doors of this church are open wide to weary and broken sinners. And they always will be. But there's a difference, right, between, between coming to the Lord broken and humbled and coming to, to him for his mercy and casting yourselves upon his grace when you're convicted of your sin. There's a difference between that approach versus coming in proud and with a hard heart acting as if there's nothing wrong and singing your songs and saying we love God with some pious shows of religion during worship. Meanwhile, our lives don't reflect at all the fact that we know God. We go out and we mistreat our employees or we neglect our family or we hate our neighbors or those who are different from us. Do you, do you see the difference in approach? And so Isaiah chapter 1 shows us that, that sin is a problem, but religion is, is not the solution. Religion won't save the world. Later in Isaiah chapter 5, God will compare his people Israel to a vineyard. And the vineyard, it, it belonged to him, he says, and it, he did everything to make it thrive. He cleared away the stones. He planted the best vines. He built a watchtower, but the vineyard uh, yielded bad fruit. It belonged to God and had all the external markings of a good vineyard. And yet corruption and bad fruit came out of it. Um, Pastor Mark Driscoll wrote a book years ago called Religion Saves and Nine Other Misconceptions. It's a pretty arresting cover, right? Nice little family going to church. Flames of judgment. Yeah, it, it's a pretty striking Graphic, And I, I haven't read the book. I don't know if it's any good. And Driscoll's had his share of controversy, so I'm not necessarily endorsing him. But I love the title of the book, Religion Saves and Nine Other Misconceptions. We have that misconception, don't we? Religion is going to save the world. Church attendance and coming in here on Sunday and going to your community group. That's what's going to get you into heaven. All, all these uh, sin problems in Isaiah, they get cleaned up, right? If people were just more religious, good church-going folk. But we say, wait a second. 
They're already doing all the churchy stuff. They're going through the external motions, and that's not changing anything about how they actually live or how they actually relate with God or how they actually love people. So what is the answer then? If sin is the problem and religion's not the solution, what do we do? Well, there's two parts to the answer. <clears throat> the first is this. We need to learn to obey. Say with me here. We need to, to repent. We need to change our mind. Turn around. Go, go the other direction, right? God says uh, how much he, he loathes the people's sacrifices and religious hypocrisy. And then he goes on to say this. Look at chapter 1, verse 16. <clears throat> Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Pretty straightforward, right? Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Come now, let us settle the matter. Or your text might say, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. So the first part of this, verses 16 and 17, is pretty simple. Like, learn to do right. Stop doing what is wrong. Stop stealing money. Care about orphans. Give money to the poor. Stop using pornography. Tell the truth. Pay your taxes. Love your spouse. Right? We, can, we can go on and on. Turn from sin in your life and obey God. We should strive to obey God and do things his way. I mean, we're not perfect. We're, we're going to stumble as we do this. But, but we, we can't read this passage or other commands in the Bible and be like, yeah, but I mean, God doesn't really expect us to do any of this. Right? <laughs> I mean, God's realistic. He, he doesn't just expect me to go my whole life without oppressing the poor. I mean, come on. Let's be realistic, right? He doesn't expect me to go my whole life and just not mistreat widows. Come on, let's be real. No, of course we we read this and he he expects us to, to obey him and to listen and to try to follow the ways of God. I mean, again, we're gonna do it imperfectly. But there's still this command. I mean, so, so there might be, maybe in your life this morning, it's like a really practical, simple change, step of repentance that God's calling you to. Might be a certain sin in your life that he's pointing out by his spirit and, and convicting you about and say, hey, it's time to move away from that, time to turn from that. Or there might be some, some good in the world that he's calling you to do, to take a risk, to take a step, to, to learn to love people, love your neighbors in, in some practical way. And he's saying, now, now's the time. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. So there's a, there's a simplicity here that, that we should strive to obey the Lord, right? That's a, does that make sense? The simple concept. Um, but again, there's two parts to the answer of what to do about sin. Because we see in the Bible this consistent pattern that even with the law of God and even with the commands of God and his word, the, the people of God continue to sin, right? They still stumble and fall. And you read throughout the Old Testament and you see that this just over and over this pattern of where people make a mess of their lives and they harm other people and they disobey God. And even those whom he calls, even those whom he chooses to use. And there's so many examples in the Old Testament 
uh, these, these people who are not really intended to be these like moral pillars were to follow. Instead, they're there as this, this warning, this example of how sinful we continue to be. I mean, just, just think about the different characters in the Old Testament. These real people. Abraham. Yes, he trusted God, but then he goes and pimps out his wife in a foreign land because he's afraid. Or think about Moses. Yes, he led the people, but he uh, really disobeyed God, didn't want to go, and then he doesn't even get to enter the promised land because of his pride in his heart. Think about David. He was pretty good, right? Did some things right, but then he, he sleeps with Bathsheba, kills her husband, right? I mean, you could just go on and on, looking through the Old Testament, how these people, even the ones that are called and used by God, are so messy, and continue to have sin in their lives. And so as you read through the Old Testament, it just gives us this sense of longing and expectation of something has to change because this this is just a tire fire. I mean, this is just a train wreck. I mean, something has to be different. We need uh, a hero. We need uh, some internal transformation. We need not just external religion. We need someone to come along and, and fix the problems that we see and change our hearts. This is why throughout the, the book of Isaiah, we see, yes, these, these words of judgment, these heavy realities of, of sin, but also these promises of, of something to come. These promises of someone who would come and change things someone who would come and, and do for the people what they couldn't do for themselves. We see these alternating words of judgment and hope. These promises of a, a future era, a coming king, a savior, a healer, a, a leader, a redeemer that would not just repeat the mistakes of the past, but would actually save us and deal with the reality of sin. And so that's the ultimate answer to the problem of sin. It's the coming Messiah. It's the Lord Jesus and what he came to do. See, throughout the book of Isaiah, there's this theme of needing to be cleansed and washed from our sin. We see it in chapter 1 and verse 18. We see it in chapter 4 and chapter 6. And famously, chapter 53, we need our, our sin to be atoned for. Right? The sin that we have done, we need to be cleansed and forgiven. God doesn't just wink at it and sweep it under the rug because God is a God of justice and righteousness and he always does what is right. And so when we're sick with sin, we don't need someone to tell us that we're not sick or pretend that we're okay. We hopefully uh, can receive the antidote from the doctor, the healing required, right? When, when, you're, when you're dirty, and need a shower and smell bad, the answer isn't to have a friend come and say, hey, you don't smell that bad, don't worry. The answer is you need to take a shower. <laughs> Junior high boys, right? Um, you need to take a shower. Sorry, guys. Um, right, and so Isaiah, like a skilled surgeon, is going to give us this hard reality of sin and the healing that we need so that we would long for the the antidote and the solution and the, the healing. And again, it points us forward to this savior who would come and, and bear our sins and, and take upon himself the consequences of our sin. And so in the Old Testament, there's a system of sacrifice for animals. You know, we provide some temporary 
cleansing, and it always pointed forward to this once-for-all sacrifice, the Messiah who would come and, and die for his people and do what the blood of goats and lambs could never do. And so we read in the New Testament passages like 1 Corinthians 6 that talks about uh, this whole list of, of, of sins and ways that we go wrong and disobey God. And it says, then, and such were some of you. But you were washed, it says, and you were sanctified and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God. So it lists all these ways of sin that, that we walk in. And then it says, and such were some of you. You used to be defined by that. But you were washed. When you came to Jesus, he cleaned you up. Not that you'll never sin again, but he brought you forgiveness and he changed your heart and he cleansed you so that you could stand before the Lord in his righteousness and not face condemnation because you are in Christ. Do you see that Jesus died for us to cleanse us, to wash us from our sin so that we could be reconciled to God? He offers this for all who trust in him. And then not only dealing with our sin, but pointing forward to these promises like Isaiah chapter two, verse two. Look at it with me. It says, in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and all nations will stream to it. Again, this is one of those promises where Isaiah, yes, things are bad now, but he points us forward. There's, there's coming a day when things are going to be different. And things aren't going to look the way they do now. And he says, there, in the last days, the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. In other words, God's glory will be seen. He'll be exalted above all other gods. And the nations, it says, will stream to God. Like a magnet, they'll be drawn to God's presence. And then you, you see passages in the New Testament, like John chapter 12, where Jesus says that when he is exalted, when he is lifted up, he will draw all men to himself. Isaiah chapter 2 speaks about the temple of the Lord being exalted and established as the highest mountain. And Jesus comes along and he says, he is the new temple. And when he is lifted up and exalted, he will be that magnet drawing all people to himself with this invitation to come and find life and come and be forgiven and come and be reconciled to the God who loves you and come and be adopted into the family of God and come and call God your father and come receive the Holy Spirit that then dwells within you and actually changes your heart. And then by the power of God, he actually empowers you to live a new life. Isaiah 2 verse 3 goes on to say that as people are drawn to God, he'll then teach us his ways. He'll teach us to obey. He'll teach us to love him and to serve him and walk in his ways. And so maybe you're here this morning and, and you've just been burdened by your sin or your life and the way it looks and you've tried to change it on your own. Um, it's not working. And maybe you're here this morning and you say, well, I've, I, yeah, it didn't work uh, when I tried it on my own. And now I've tried the religious way and that doesn't seem to be working either. Again, I want to point you to, to the real answer to the problem. And it's, it's Jesus. It's his love for you. It's his death for you. It's his spirit and power then dwelling within you, empowering you to live this new life. Religion won't save the world, but Jesus will. Would you pray with me? 
Lord Jesus, we love you and we, we thank you for your word. And we admit this morning that reading your word is not always comfortable because it, it convicts us and it challenges our assumptions and it, it shines a light <clears throat> into our hearts and in places that are not very flattering. We don't always like to see. But Lord, we know that in order to heal us, uh, we have to be honest about the problem. We have to confess our need before you. And thank you that in Isaiah, there's this sobering word about sin and judgment. And yet this powerful word of mercy and hope. That you, Jesus, did not leave us in our sin, but you came to us. You died for us to wash us and free us from slavery to sin and give us this new life as your children. Pray if there's anyone here this morning, Lord, who has not put their trust in you, that right now in this moment, they would cry out to you in their heart. They would cast themselves upon your mercy, Jesus, and invite you into their life. And for those of us walking with you, Lord, help us walk in your ways. Convict us and lead us by your spirit. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.